Welcome to the Learning Development Project Podcast. The goal of this show is to foster conversations around learning development as a field of educational practice. To this end, we talk to people who have published in this area and contributed to making LDA what it is. Every episode is filled with ideas that inform our practice and make our work with learners meaningful. We are your hosts, Alicia Siska and Karina Buckley. And today we'll be talking to Dr. Sunny Dillon, who is currently lecturer in education studies at Bishop Grosseteste University, following several years as a learning developer at the University of Leeds. Sunny's research interests include critical theory, the philosophy of education and utopia, nice idea, and these ideas have found their way into a critical view of well-being in higher education. So we'll begin today with this 2018 paper, Whose Wellbeing Is It Anyway?, from the Journal of Learning Development in Higher Education. But on the way, we'll take in COVID, neoliberalism, decolonisation. So sit back and enjoy the ride. And thank you very much, Sunny, for joining us today. Thank you for the invite. Pleasure to have you here. Before we start, is there anything else you'd like to share about yourself, what you do, or what you have done that has shaped your thinking and writing? That our listeners might want to know. Uh, no, that was thank you. It's a very nice introduction. It summed it up quite nicely. Um, yeah, before I was at Leeds as a learning developer, um, I was at my, this institution I'm at now, actually, Bishop Gross Test. That's where I started my uh, career in learning development back in 2016. Um, so, yeah. Excellent. Full circle then. Yeah. So, you wrote this paper as an opinion piece. Um, what's its origin story? So, there's a keynote speaker. In 2017 at Bishop Gross Test from uh, Advanced HE, then known as the HEA, wasn't it? Higher Education mm-hmm. Academy. And um, the the idea was that we needed to become, so regardless of professional uh, or academic staff, we needed to become agents of well-being was a turn of phrase used. Mm-hmm. And it had a very kind of superhero-esque kind of connotation, which I found quite amusing. And it was quite a loaded paper. It showed how statistically, um, for those who've read the paper, we'll see that those in higher education suffer with more mental health issues than those of the general populace, population of the same uh, similar age group, et cetera, et cetera. And it was well-intentioned and it said, we need to kind of really look out for students' well-being, and that's that's fine. Um, but it was that in conjunction with a number of other, you know, small cuts throughout the, the next uh, subsequent six months, along with the kind of in, introduction of the TEF that year, that mm-hmm. kind of really started to um, uh, get to me actually. <laughs> so um, uh, I, I found myself getting annoyed at certain practices and a lack of irony um, uh, at certain things that were taking place. And so, for example, we had a sec- section of kind of motivational cards that needed to be kind of put out at some stall somewhere at the university. And one of the cards said, you know, quit your day job, you know, there's a motivational kind of blase, you know, uh, you know kind of quotes but I was instructed explicitly by my line manager to remove it to get rid of anything that could be perceived as you know in encouraging students to perhaps leave their course or do something different and so the culture of fear and the issue of retention was you know never more prevalent to me never more kind of at the forefront of the thinking lack of irony and it led to pitching for a conference paper at Aldine in 2018 at Leicester, which I believe you were at, weren't you, Karina? And I was uh, John was at, and, uh, and uh, who is to become my future colleague, Annika Easy from Leeds as well. And um, the paper provoked some discussion. It went well. And then it um, inspired me to write a, a journal article, or turn it into an article, basically, which wasn't the initial idea, which is a bit of a rant, basically. <laughs> and so um, uh, I find that, that, you know, it's maybe a later question, but I find that 
I'm very good at writing or speaking about something that annoys me rather than something that I generally like. So if anything that generally annoys me or I find rather kind of amusing, I'll, I'll use that as fuel for my kind of writing. And so I submitted it as a journal article later that year in 2018, and it was actually rejected by the reviewers. Uh, outright not for not for this is before Alithia's time so I won't point fingers <laughs> but um, it was actually rejected and I thought nothing of it I thought fine no 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 harm no foul I'll try and take it somewhere else and then I actually got I can't remember if it was an email or a phone call from John who was the editor at the time I believe and he was just said he was just literally doing some quality control moderation and it just so happened that my paper was one of the ones that was rejected so he wasn't looking out for it and he actually said um I'm so sorry that this was rejected outright. I think this actually could contribute to the discourse about, you know, on learning development. And so it was with his encouragement and a few kind of tweaks and edits. I really should list him as a, as a co-author, but he's as gracious as he is kind and wise. So he, he allowed me that one. He didn't take any credits, uh, but he helped me kind of tweak uh, a few things and, and then it got published. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. Because uh, it's one of the most... Uh, interesting really and provocative pieces that we have published uh, in the past few years I, I i think and i really like that provocation that you make in terms of your three responses to the <laughs> crisis of well-being uh, in higher education could you tell us a little bit more about how these ideas came about and what the listeners should know uh, about these options um, I, I don't I remember how they came about. I was just looking for a taxonomy of thought just to kind of make my ideas a bit neater, basically. Um, the, the quote I had in my head, um, if I put myself back in that hat four or five years ago, was um, by Jiddu Krishnamurti, an Indian philosopher, which was, it's no measure of health to be well adjusted mm -hmm. to a profoundly sick society. So but if you think society is OK, then obviously that quote doesn't really work for you. But that's how I felt at the time and I continue to feel. And that kind of fueled my idea of, okay, what routes, it was me thinking aloud, what routes can we engineer out of this situation we find ourselves in? So one is a kind of Aldous Huxley, Soma, or Matrix, blue pill kind of mode. One was a kind of, you know, tough love, you know, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps. And the middle ground was this notion of a kind of gym trainer, which I actually, going on to a subject, probably a later question, I actually don't agree with anymore. I'm, I find that I find myself uncomfortable with the route I offered. And I've actually come to a newer idea now than I would then because at the time I thought well learning developers need to be like the metaphor would be like a gym instructor or gym trainer so we can help students achieve their quote-unquote fitness goals you know academic goals etc but that itself is way too the connotations are way too marketized they're too they're too concomitant with the neoliberal agenda they're too well adjusted to that so you know, think of Oxbridge as the David Lloyd gyms, right? And then other gyms would be pure gyms and so on. And then, you know, it, it doesn't really work. It, 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 instead of that, I think something much more organic would be needed. An update on this paper would be something that would be much more kind of grassroots. So I remember back in 2010, when I was in the gym trying to do a tricep pull down in awful form, and a, and a small lady, Arabic lady came up to me and she said in a thick accent you're doing it all wrong you know you, you don't this is how you need to do it I said you know how do you know what are you a personal trainer she said yes I am actually and so I said I said and she because I could really help you I said well I can't afford it right so stick with the analogy here in education <laughs> so I said so what do you I can't really afford to have a personal trainer you know I was a student at the time and stuff so she said all right what can you afford and so what we did is we worked out a solution where we went to a local park so we're there in a park, you know, silly, silly o'clock in the morning, and she's there holding my legs in a wheelbarrow position, got me on benches and all sorts for the pittance that I could afford to pay her. So 
can you see where the analogy is going here? <laughs> so in terms of education, she, uh, she tailored her approach to my resource. Mm. She got me doing what I needed to do using the natural organic environment. And she gave me tools that I could, quote unquote, I know it's got a hackneyed tone, but empower myself or use these movements and exercises she taught me that I can continue to do myself I don't need her, a trainer I don't need to be in the gym it's it's you know I can be out there doing it myself and I haven't needed to have a session with her you know since those sessions then so I think of educational learning development in a similar kind of mold can we enact a kind of hertagogical practice can we so rather than pedagogy teaching the students things can we give them the tools and enable them to become self-sufficient learners in and of themselves be it in education or out of education so I think that more organic route is more in keeping with my ethos and less likely to be co-opted by a kind of the neoliberal kind of campaign. So that's why I would that's how I would change my thesis. It's fascinating that metaphor, because where does it place learning developers as people who can both work both within the system and outside yes. of the system that's exactly when you say you know if you ask me where learning development is at or how, what i what i think of as learning development the phrase that comes to mind rather than the you know the quote-unquote guide on the side would be um uh, insider outsider so insider south outsider, and I, because you get to mediate the role between the academics the students between wider socio-political concerns it's a wonderfully fruitful place to be and to be able to do things from within the institution but also thinking of the because you know it is obviously emancipatory slash liberatory practice. Um, and I think that is where learning development is at its strongest in that in that positionality that it has within institutions. Hmm. That's really interesting because I'd um, written down uh, one of my questions coming out of your article was how can learning developers help to challenge the individualization of the well-being agenda? And it, you've just answered it beautifully. <laughs> Partly, I, have, I mean, with, with that in mind, um, I mean, this was the late Mark Fisher, who was a cultural critic. This was his um, thesis, which was that, you know, the well-being agenda is about, or the wider social well-being agenda is about individualizing social problems and putting on individual learners what are social inequalities. Um, and I think with students, I think what learning developers can really do in their, in their positions of one-to-ones and so on and so forth is to embolden the students to explore context, right? So it goes back to, I took a quote from uh, John's um, edited book, which is that knowledge is not the value-free, decontextualized, neutral and apolitical construct it's thought to be, right? Mm -hmm. So that it's really foregrounding that in the student's mind. So when we look at what makes an effective argument, we think of synthesis and bringing together different ideas. And I think in almost like a, a it's hard to do in a metric driven culture where things need to be so clear cut, but I think, if you relate it to kind of like a jazz metaphor, so I'm going to be killing you with metaphors, <laughs> which is a metaphor itself. Um, there's a quote about the late John Coltrane, which I love, um, which is this commentator says about Coltrane's jazz, which is the more widespread one sources, the less one sounds like any of them. So eclecticism, it seems to me, is one hallmark of genius. So if we can allow students to see the connections between their own lived experience and the academic content which they're engaging with and to be brave enough to make those connections and say, is X like Y or isn't that a bit like this? Um, that's where they can really see that anything that they're looking at is not in a vacuum. It's not apolitical. It's not, um, uh, it can't be extrapolated from the wider context. So it's about really creating that habit pattern. It's about seeing those synapses, you know, you know, when the students, you know, they're getting something and the synapses are firing and you can see the connections being made like, oh, this is like that. 
uh, that's what I think we can do as learning developers and as education developers as well. So in effect, you're kind of proposing to invite students into this space of ambiguity and be comfortable yeah. with that. It's, that's it. it's Sarah Amsler who's written about this pedagogy of discomfort. It's all about embracing the discomfort. It's, it's about going beyond, it's, you know, Perry's stages of conceptual reasoning. It's about going beyond those stages of, you know, thinking that there's a correct answer to going on to a sense of relativism, then realizing, okay, I need to have commitment to a certain position to be able to engage in any kind of discourse. So it's not mere relativism, but I also need to be able to then entertain the debate with a with a commitment that I'm going in. So it's thinking of ideas in a constellation of ideas, basically, that certain stars will shine brighter than others on a certain evening. They will make different patterns. And it's about engaging them in a, in a playful manner. So it's not about deifying or reifying or kind of um, putting ideas on a pedestal, but it's about giving students the confidence, engendering that confidence to take risks and to get messy. And that's how you can really see the wood for the trees, as it were. Otherwise, you're going to be always um, subject to taking something in a very kind of, which was what we're guilty of in academia, right? We, you know, we noticed that as you go through the quote unquote levels, like it's a game, Mm -hmm. you realize that the uh, boundaries between subjects are very porous, right? So they're not as fixed as they might appear. Um, whereas obviously at undergraduate levels, if you're doing a degree in bioengineering, bioengineering, whatever you might be doing, and you realize actually it's got a lot more to do with quantum theory and it's got a lot more to do with philosophy than you may have hitherto realized. So it's about breaking down those distinctions, I think, is where we can really come into things because we come from such a diverse range of backgrounds. That's what I love about the learning development field in Aldine. I'd never been to a conference, obviously by the nature of the conference, I've never been to a conference or where there were people from such different backgrounds, you know, astrophysicists next to archaeologists, next to philosophers, next to linguists and mathematicians. What a wonderfully kind of fruitful environment to have invigorating debates and exchange of ideas. I like that um, the ambiguity idea um, just leading in thinking about all these different backgrounds that we have and that by being ambiguous, it allows us to better examine our beliefs and our values without threatening necessarily those beliefs or threatening yourself. You're challenging the beliefs, but you're not challenging yourself. And I wonder if this is what learning developers do, if they're moving from a discipline into learning development, yeah. they are letting something go, but embracing something else, a, a different worldview or a wider worldview at the same time. That's it. It takes us out of our silos. It takes it takes out of our academic silos, um, which is what leads to such fruitful discussions. Yeah, mm. Absolutely. I wonder about one aspect of it. So because this kind of approach encourages students to be self-reflexive, there is sometimes in some institutions in particular, and um, I don't probably have to say which kinds of institutions, but there is this kind of attitude that students are busy, busy achieving, busy, busy you know, hardworking to achieve their, uh, the, the best grades, etc. So there is this kind of mm -hmm. constant strive and constant um, drive yeah, towards excellence. Mm -hmm. uh, there's no time for self-reflection. What does it add to a student's life or to a student's you know, uh, burden, the, the already existing burden and maybe stress mm. to now uh, engage in another kind of activity that is supposed to help them, but actually it's a, a strain on, on their time? Which, which is exactly where something like the well-being agenda, as it was rolled out before, was so pernicious to me you say how could you think of that as pernicious how could it be dangerous wanting students to be mentally well and well adjusted 
because what you, like, so as you just said as you rightly put it the the agenda the um, interest or the focus of the of institutions is to result in satisfied students who stay at the institution right and, and see them and go through that's the kind of ethos right so it really goes back to that bigger question which obviously people like ronald barnett has um, written on this uh, at length which is what what is the university we still don't really know what it is and it's constantly evolving right there's no idea of what the university is right so i think yes it depends if you're looking at it from a particular point of view then this would be merely exacerbating existing social a uh, student um, insecurities etc cetera, etc cetera. my my ethos is obviously to do that right i am all about provoking that because that's where breakthroughs can occur you have to kind of I don't know whether metaphor you have to kind of like you know poke the wound for something to occur right you have to provoke promote self-healing rather than merely putting a band-aid on the wound you have to create let the body create the antibodies to start doing the self-healing but you have to have the patience and the courage to enable students to do that and that's not a culture we live in right we live in a very kind of metric audit driven culture so this is where it comes to the question i, I wrote down you know are hiring is our universities places of care Right. Most of the people working at them would purport that they are, that they're caring individuals, that they're on the right side of history. We're all liberal lefties. Right. We all want the best for everyone, et cetera, et cetera. That's most that's kind of how the majority thesis goes. And we resist the notion that universities are factories for instrumental learning, which is kind of what you were alluding to there. Right. That, that, this, that it's instrumental learning taking place, outcomes based. But I think what's happened in the last decade, 15 years, which is very worrying, is that universities have become factories because they are, but with a human face. With people with unwilling subjects who are kind of resisting that tide, you know that you see that you see this happening with the um, uh, the union strikes, etc., and the kind of uh, dis uh, discourse being articulated there. You know, we want we don't want factories of learning, obviously, that we care, that we're good people that work at universities, right? We're on the right side of history and so on. And the problem with that is that any ostensibly progressive um, agenda, be it well-being, decolonization, or transactivism, whatever it might be, whatever the topic of the day might be in question, they become PR exercises for the institutions rather than truly about engaging with these issues in a critical manner. So you could replace well-being, like I said, with decolonization, which has become a lot more the kind of in vogue thing. You don't really hear talk about well-being like you used to. It's much more about equity and diversity, et cetera, et cetera. But and, and, and again, going back to your, 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 your observation there, yeah, whether we need to get the quote unquote BAME students through, we can see that they, I've been in meetings where these words have literally been used, right? So we can see that they're under, they're underperforming by a metric of X, Y, Z. So we need to bring their numbers up as if it's the simple as transactional model like that. Literally those things are being spouted in meetings that I've been, <laughs> been, been at and pulling my hair out at. And it's very, I don't really know what to do about that whilst you're in the institution because the institution has business goals, regardless of whether it's Leeds, where I am now, et cetera, et cetera. They have different challenges, but ultimately they're being run like um, corporations, right? Businesses. Um, and so anything I am suggesting in terms of critiquing decolonization agendas or well-being agendas is seen as kind of like, look, we get where you're coming from. That's all very good. You've got your philosopher's hat on there. That's fine. But really, we need to get them through. <laughs> it's it's kind of it's kind of you know. I feel like sometimes, especially in meetings, I feel like I'm the tolerated idiot brother. He's, he's like he's well-meaning, you know. That's that's nice. It's all very cute, but he's he's living in the clouds, you know. He's got his head up his um, proverbial. He's not really he doesn't understand the kind of material reality, the bottom line logic of what we're dealing with here, which is completely false. Before joining education, I used to work in the corporate world, corporate finance sector in London. I'm well too aware 
of the intricacies of that particular world, which is partly why I left it. <laughs> well, it's the main reason why I left it. So I, I'm not um, certainly naive to, to the demands of the quote unquote material need for universities to retain, et cetera. But in doing so, it's a very slippery slope. Like, what, you know, going back to what you said, Alicia, about the um, students being under pressure to need to achieve, et cetera, it leads to things like there was a student at Oxford a couple of years ago who was taking legal action for not being granted a 2-1. Do you remember that story? Yeah, yeah. Because he felt it's a duty of care by the university to grant him a 2-1 to achieve his uh, desired outcomes in his life, his life goals. And he spent a lot of money and he's contributed to the local economy, you know, by going to Oxford, et cetera. And it starts to get to a point where in a few years time, <laughs> students will have legitimate cases like that. I'm a, so say I'm BAME or say I'm a marginalized community. Um, do I have, and if you think of the notion of repatriation, uh, um, repatriations, et cetera, et cetera. Um, yeah, I have historical recourse to be able to ask for these kinds of uh, concessions. Hmm. Yeah, well, it's, uh, it's just another kind of worse, isn't it? <laughs> it's a massive uh, challenge of today. Uh, but if I just kind of pedal back a little bit to your um, to the pedagogy of discomfort that you use, because it's such a fascinating. Uh, I mean, it's a, obviously it's it's an idea that has existed for a while, but we don't really tend to use it much. We don't really tend to engage with it that much. We talk a lot about, let's say, pedagogy of kindness. And I was just wondering how these two coalesce or maybe diverge. Is there a tension there or mm -hmm. are they complementary? How do you see them? I don't know. As you said, it, it, it is complex. I feel I, I found, I don't know if this is answering the question, but it's trying to conflate kindness with discomfort. I found since, okay, when I was in learning development, I found that students used to be really pleased with me. They quote unquote liked me as a person, not that they knew me as a person, but they thought, you know, this guide on the side coming in, being a benevolent kind of Messiah type figure, helping me, showing me, taking me to the holy ground. And, you know, you get chocolates and cards. People think that you've helped them so much because you've demystified something that they weren't getting. And you'd go in there, you'd do your bit and you'd leave walking into the sunset. And that's how it was for four years, regardless of whether I was at Bishop Gross Test or Leeds. It was very consistent. And you know, occasional student kicks off, says that that person didn't help me and give me what I wanted. But for the majority, it was always happy and managers are happy. Everyone's happy. It's all a big hug fest. And since becoming a lecturer in education studies, students really don't like me. They really don't like me. They don't like me. It's 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 notice, and I'm quite the same. I've, I you know, Karina will attest that more or less. I haven't changed. I'm still spouting the same nonsense. But they really don't like me because I'm with them on a longitudinal basis. So they've seen me week on week, and they're seeing that I'm not letting up. I'm gonna keep provoking and poking and poking and poking, and I'm not gonna let up. I'm not here to help them. I'm not here to be their buddy. I'm not here as the guide on the side. I'm here to provoke and. I would like to think, and I've noticed the, the coldness, the frostiness or the certain, yeah, there's the, um, definitely a, a disjunct of the same kind of social, kind of, this is a cohort I would have been working with a few years ago, so I'm very familiar with the kind of demographic of the student, but it's definitely, mark, it's, it's, it's definitely noticeable how different the interaction is. So one of my ways of dealing with it is I constantly foreground um, how do I do the, how do I negotiate the kindness with the discomfort? I constantly foreground my situation as I constantly foreground who I am and our power relation. So there was an interesting conversation with a second year student who was like, um, we had a really interesting debate that just kicked off was like, should I be paid according to your grades? Right. That's how they were kind of, they were really shocked that my wage or my salary didn't depend on them getting two ones. Couldn't believe it. They just took it as a given that my 
salary would be dependent on their outcomes. Like, and then we went back and we said, um, they were like, well, why do they keep telling me Ayla was to get X, Y, Z and blah, 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 and so on. And then we keep peeling and peeling. And I see the kind of mist just dis disappearing in front of the student's eyes. And, and it's really unsettling for them. It can be really, especially in year two, when you, they're getting more accustomed to university life. And they see me as, well, they, they clearly don't, they're not going to like that. <laughs> they're going to see it as like, why are you, why are you telling me this now? Like, who are you? Why, why does this exist? Like, I remember students saying, well, is this what, you know, is this the challenges we're going to face as a teacher and so on and so forth? Just, just, you know, the eyes just dropping. Hmm. And I see that as a job well done, not because I'm a masochist, but because I'm in, you know, if you're doing, if you're teaching Ivan Illich's de-schooling society, you bloody well should be uncomfortable. You shouldn't read that and then, you know, drink a margarita and think the world's gravy. Like you should be uncomfortable, Paolo Freire's Pedagogy of the Oppressed. So I would like to be, and I'm not there provoking for the sake of it. I'm, it's because this matters, right? And so I'm hoping that years down the line or there might be a moment when the, when students enter the teaching practice wherever line of work they're in working for an NGO wherever they go ah I can see what that guy was saying about neoliberalism or the seeds of xyz oh I, I see oh I see how that connects now those dots are making sense to me um, because I found in my experience in this role that the mature students tend to be nodding along or smiling knowingly in the class a lot more than the younger students will be because that life experience has shown them that actually this is probably the case whereas the younger students who are still much more hopeful which is a beautiful thing don't like that hope being knocked out <laughs> which, is, <laughs> which is totally understandable which is totally understandable this is probably overly simplistic but um should learning developers be more uncomfortable should we experience more discomfort in our work ourselves um <laughs> my, my background's in philosophy and I've read like I've just basically you know ingested all the works of Nietzsche and stuff so I'm perennially uncomfortable because like you know you say you are what you eat you are what you read like I've read you know I've, my, my bedfellows are Kierkegaard and Nietzsche so I'm a miserable sod right like that's by the you know whereas if you re just read go read bell hooks you know like it's much better <laughs> just read, read bell hooks you know, read something a bit more, or Freire, read Freire, he's cool, like, it's, you know, he it, engages with the messiness of the world, but he's, you know, he's got a plan. <laughs> so I think, should they be uncomfortable? No, I'm not going to say that they, I can't, as a blanket statement, say that they should. I think that everyone, I think that's the beauty of learning development is it has space at the table for everyone, right? Regardless of discipline, but listening back to prior episodes, so listening, you know, someone like Kate Coulson, for example, who, for example, doesn't like writing and, and, and is quite happy to play the, the numbers game. She'll play it because she knows there's, there's outcomes to be gleaned from it. She has a temperament that I just don't have. I can't do what Kate does. I cannot do it. But what I can do is intellectually masturbate, right? <laughs> so I'm, I'm a basically an intellectual masturbator. But the great thing is that LD has room at the table for people like myself. I won't keep saying that phrase over and over again. <laughs> and it has room at the table for someone like Kate as well, who can play, all right, I'm going to do this, you know, who can use the numbers, use data and show its efficacy. I'm not here to point fingers and say, oh, you know, oh, they're just bean counters or we'll use derogatory terms like that. Um, you know, whilst I'm on the side, if I if we start entering the slanging matches where we see people like, oh, well, they're bean counters and other people will see people like myself as, well, these philosophers just 
you know, basically pontificate on whether the bean is even there or not, right? So we don't get anywhere. So what we do need is we need room at the table for all different dispositions. So yes, some people, I guess, should be uncomfortable, but other people need to feel very gung-ho and confident about what they're doing to be able to tell a story of what learning development does. So I think what, to answer your question, I think what we need is, we don't need people to all be uncomfortable, but we need people to all be um, respectful and working and yeah, trying to work as a team, essentially, trying to work as a community of practice, which I know is a phrase that has been used at conferences in the past. Mm -hmm. So do you feel that, well, first of all, maybe, um, what kind, is that the kind of conversations that you, you were hoping to provoke with that piece, by publishing that piece? And if so, do you feel that it actually happened, that this got picked up somewhere, or maybe you picked up elsewhere? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, what, what has come out of this? Well, what on a very simple basis, I mean, we had a psychology lecturer at the university at the time who, who picked up on it, and we've worked on a paper together about the rise of, the th of therapeutic education. So it kind of expanded on the thesis, taking into mind, at that time when we published, there was no student minds charter, which came into practice a couple of years ago, which is kind of like a charter, which a charity is uh, devised, which 32 universities signed up to saying, we're going to commit to these principles to make sure our students' mental well-being is being, uh, uh, at least in legislative terms, at least being kind of catered for, right? So my agenda was to basically put that out as a bit of a research agenda so we could do some research, maybe do some empirical research. But mainly, like I said, my motivation to write anything really is often provoked by a sense of uh, annoyance or something. You know, I did um, a comedy training course many moons ago and they said, um, talk about, they started off with a really interesting icebreaker. They said, talk about something you're interested in for a minute. And everyone did that. And it was very nice. And it's very kind of hallmark card, very you know, I like taking my dog for a walk or something like that. And then they said, okay, now we want you to talk for a minute about something that really pisses you off. And that was funny. That was engaging. That was invigorating. People were, you know, talking about, I don't know, late buses or, you know, certain governments. And all of a sudden you can see passion coming out in people's voices. So with my writing, with this article, it's because I saw something happening that no one seemed to be commenting on. Everyone has taken kind of like, well, you know, we care it's about the students, you know, why are you being such a kind of downer? If the students want to stroke llamas and feel good about themselves, why can't they do that? You know, why do you have to, you know, be talking bad about the llamas, which we literally had on campus, right? So there's no money, but we've got llamas on campus for students to stroke to make them feel better. Um, I'd be handing up, you know, Ivan Illich's de-schooling society. <laughs> we've got llamas on campus eating the books. Um, and that's not to say I'm, a, I'm, I'm not a killjoy. I don't see, I, I obviously, you know, llamas are nice. But yeah, I think <laughs> I think it's I think it's important to to um, sometimes. I mean, my background is in critical theory, so and from the Frankfurt School. And anyone knows anything about the first iteration of the Frankfurt School is that they're not exactly fun at a party. So they're quite. Um, they see they, you know, they Jewish guys in exile during World War Two, right? They're not going to see the world through rose-tinted lenses. Their best mate, Walter Benjamin, one of their best mates, he committed suicide in the French-Spanish border. I mean, they're not in a good place. And they see the world and they see culture as a kind of a problem. Um, and that's the theory I've been kind of <laughs> attracted to for a long time. So that's the way I see the world. And, you know, unfortunately, well, probably fortunately, I don't meet a lot of colleagues that see things the way I see them. So I often find myself, you know, be it in a couple of years ago, it was uh, in the context of decolonization, or if it was last year in the context of um, certain um, transactivism, especially in the context of Leeds, I find myself every, every, every now and then into kind of entering with a kind of critical take on something. Mm -hmm. And it often, it's appreciated in the sense, okay, well, yeah, we didn't see it that way before, but it's kind of like, 
I'm seen as almost like a momentum killer. You know, like you're kind of like, well, we were kind of going full, you know, full throttle with this, and you had to come in with your freaking philosophy and bring us back down. And it's oh, that's, that wasn't very nice. <laughs> it's like it's, but it goes back to you know the philosophical tradition going back to Socrates. He was what's called a gadfly. He was called the gadfly, which was there to provoke, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he provoked people so badly that they made him kill himself in front of an audience. So <laughs> this is this is basically built into the fabric of the the tradition I'm working in. So it's not something that would be changed. It's quite it's something that I will continually do. It's just something that I'm going to be doing the rest of my career, looking at what's going on and 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 looking at it with a critical eye. Not because I caught attention or um, want to be that annoying gadfly. It's just because that's the way I see the world, unfortunately. <laughs> But also, to me, you're just practicing what you're preaching. You know, you're just doing the pedagogy of discomfort. Uh, you're just spreading that kind of approach, right? In a, in a way. But I also feel that you you do make space for other people. So you you are probably controversial to some people, but you actually give space for other views as well. So even in the in this article, you say, you know, if it works for you to go to you know a mindfulness session, yeah. great, right? But alongside that, let's talk about the deeper roots of why we are where we are. Yeah, I, I do yoga. You know, I do yoga. I'm a trained Reiki healer. You know, people say well, that's all complete. <laughs> that's complete nonsense. But, you know, there's a certain generation we have to all we have to all do our Reiki training and stuff like that. Now, I'm open to esoteric pursuits and, and mindfulness pursuits and so on and so forth, meditation and stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I was against... And- just what I'm against is using those as a panacea for social ills right so mindfulness for corporate kind of gain and stuff like that which is kind of how it's used um and in the, in the context of decolonization obviously you know, I'm, a, I'm a minority and obviously I'm passionate about about black rights about minority rights obviously like I, that is true as I absolutely am fervently so fervently so but I also am aghast at the kind of watering down or whitening or kind of dis, a kind of diluting would be the better metaphor i guess of that particular the ethos of that particular agenda um and and that really pains me when i see something that is so radical being kind of watered down to kind of like how to guides and toolkits on how to decolonize like it's something like painting your living room or something that there's a step-by-step way in to do this you know if you go back to franz fanon he talks about decolonization being complete disorder of what is Mm. complete disorder of what is you cannot thereby necessarily create a toolkit on how to do it. Like, you just can't. It's just, it's just anathema to the ethos of decolonization. It's what we don't have. We don't know what it is. And so I think it's really, it's really important to be, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know where I'm going with this. But I think it's really important to consider yeah, that nothing exists in a, in a vacuum and that neoliberalism is extremely um adaptable flexible and it can it can take in the most kind of fervent critiques and rework them and repackage them to be sold as commodities right so wear your black lives matter t-shirt or wear your i don't know um any kind of socially progressive movement t-shirt whatever and that'll do you know Mm. and do you feel that the same kind of discourse is developing around let's say decolonization because obviously yeah Yeah. it it has multiple layers of meaning now and has acquired a kind of a life of its own and I hear some people saying, you know, let's not talk about decolonization, yeah. let's change it, let's talk about opening up or, you yeah. know, so yeah, could you comment on that? Yeah, I think the complete the term has become so so ubiquitous to mean nothing now. I think it's become an umbrella term for diversity, inclusion, uh, uh, BAME outcomes, it's become an umbrella term for all manner of um, 
commodified waste, like, you know, decolonize your living room. I don't know, by putting up a poster of Malcolm X or something. Honestly, it's been sold as a lifestyle fad now. It, it's, you know, that famous paper by, I think it was Tuck and Yang, 2012, decolonization is not a metaphor. It's about land redistribution in, in the context of the Americas. It's about addressing historical injustice. Um, and for me, decolonization, which I wrote about before the George Floyd moment, um, I wrote about it for, for Wonky and which attracted some its attention. And I've since published on that in a couple of uh, places about the need to imminently critique the, the narrative surrounding decolonization. By that, I mean using the way it's articulated and turning it on itself, basically. Um, so it's a critical theory methodology taken from Hegel, right, which Adorno reworks. So it's to imminently critique it. I can't claim a holier-than-thou standpoint. I haven't got an Archimedean standpoint to look down like a holy person and say, well, this you need to do this, this, and this. That's not the way it goes, right? I'm in the mess like everyone else, right, necessarily. So I need to be able to, and this is what I see my critical project as being about, is to highlight existing contradictions and hypocrisies to bring them to the forefront, right? So be it the well-being agenda or decolonization or, or certain ways in which the gender slash sex debate is being articulated in certain uh, arenas as well, which is obviously a hot topic. Um, and to say, well, if you're looking at something like this, taken to its conclusion, it leads to that. Mm. And is that is that healthy? Is that where we want to go? So with the decolonization, uh, narrative. I mean, I could share links. You, I don't know. I could share links to the article and stuff like that. I can't really summarize it in five minutes, but it, it's basically to take a very critical eye on the way the narrative is being articulated. Um, you know, it, it's it's not being done for the betterment of people of color in higher education. It's being done for the betterment of the university's bottom line, which is retention, attraction, and getting people through the door, right? And if they happen to have different names and different colors, then that's fantastic. But I don't, like one thing I'm steadfastly against, you cannot like decolonize your reading list by putting black people, black authors on there. Uh, uh, that's, that's so, that's, that's just, how does that make sense? Because we have the most diverse cabinet this country has ever seen. Right, Quad saying Pretty Patel. We had Rishi Sunak. Their ideas are so retrograde, conservative, right wing. But ironically, you put them on a reading list, you've decolonized your reading list. So it's not about the demographic of the author. You know, I'd much rather have Noam Chomsky on my reading list, right? Who's an old, I know he's Jewish, but you know, white man. Or, or you know, uh, Howard Zinn. Again, there seems to be a lot of Jewish authors here. <laughs> but I'm going to try. I'm going to try to find a, an Anglican white author. I'm, I'm sure one will come to me in a moment. But it's about having the voices that uh, argue for decoloniality, not because they happen to have uh, a pigmentation of a certain type that fits a bill. So <laughs> we've decolonized. We've decolonized our reading this. We've put on. I don't know. You know, Candace Owens. <laughs> it's not going to help anyone. <laughs> It's a great point you're making, yeah. And then uh, uh, one that gets lost a lot. Right? Shockingly, isn't it? It's, it's banal. It's not even interesting what I'm saying. It's not radical. Mm. It's not radical. It's like, why don't you, you know, we work in institutions. Why don't we look at the ideas rather than, you know, the skin pigmentation? You know, I work in the field of educational studies. Just last week, we were talking about the um, Michaela Institute in London, which you may or may not be familiar with, a very kind of right-wing, hardline school run by um, uh, Bilbal Singh, who's... Um, a mixed heritage scholar from the Caribbean who's got, you know, all the kind of OBs, MBs, etc., and is so, you know, right-wing authoritarian with their form of education and has been seen as an exemplar of getting black and brown kids to achieve higher than their white counterparts in school, right? But is radically authoritarian, very um, 
old school pedagogy of you know harm I would say in many in many regards um colleagues of mine made a you know a field trip to go and see the school and so on and we're, and, and it was quite shocking from things I heard back but they would be seen as an exemplar of black excellence or black achievement right yeah yeah and plenty of examples like that right in in history and pop yeah, culture yeah. and everywhere uh, absolutely um could we shift gears for a moment and uh, come back to learning development and how you think about learning development and what does it mean to you to be a learning developer, even in the context of all these conversations that we've been having? Um, yes, the insider outsider. Uh, it's, it's going back to what I said earlier about the, having that breadth of backgrounds. Um, yeah, no, I, I think it's a fruitful arena to to negotiate those different tensions that are taking place within, within institutions. You know, the fact that um, different institutions have different challenges. You know, I'm at a small cathedrals group university right now, before I was at Leeds, challenges are very different. And you have learning development teams at both. Um, it, there's, there are, so if you become a learning developer, you, you, could, you could really find something that will be very different from one institution to the next. So there's such a kind of, um, uh, different range of experiences you can have as a learning developer. It's a very open, flexible kinds of um, yeah, open-ended kind of role. So it's not fixed by the rigors of a discipline. It has an ethos behind it. Um, and it's something that will be different in different contexts. I think fundamentally it comes down to um, demystifying the processes of education. I know the word emancipation has been used and I just, I don't just, because again, linking back to issues of race and so on, emancipation has such a particular connotation for me. I find it too sanctimonious, but I do like the, the notion of demystification or grounding or opening up, as you said earlier, holding a space for um, exploration. I think that's what learning development means to me is, 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 is creating those spaces. It's what John said a couple of episodes ago about playing in the ruins, right? We are, or the, you know, it's, it's about playing in those ruins putting things together in different ways, seeing novel connections. Um, and that's what will happen by the very nature of the, the variety of our backgrounds in learning development. And if you were to turn your critical eye onto learning development, um, what kind of view do you have of where it's heading in the future or where it should go or could go? Should go. Um... Well, it's certainly growing. It's certainly growing. I see that. I see, you know, I'm still uh, signed up to obviously the, the mailing list and so on. I see a lot of jobs coming up, interesting jobs coming up. I saw a lectureship in learning development come up the other day, which was, which was interesting. And it's um, so, so much more recourse for research in that particular role, which was really good to see. Um, you know, I see your article as part of a, a growing trend to solidify the ground of or the kind of justification for the for the field of inquiry, right? So learning development is a field in itself. Um, the journal, yeah, produces high quality articles on, a, on a, such a wide variety of issues. So I see it becoming a lot more confident in itself as a field. Uh, it doesn't need to kind of has to have to justify its existence over and over again as as it would have obviously before, because the, the, the money seems to be there, the jobs seem to be coming up. I know it leads, the department was growing. It, you know, the, the name changed from learning advisors to learning developers. So that change was made. And I see it becoming a lot more recognized. Um, if you say to someone now in the university, well, I'm a learning developer, they'll know what you mean. Whereas I don't think that was the case maybe a decade ago. Um, so I think it's um, I think it's definitely growing and it's, it's, it's a strong uh, field. Uh, I mean, personally, I see myself returning to it as some, in some guys in the future in a kind of maybe um, 
maybe educational developer kind of role. So developing the learning developers. Um, so there's you know, a colleague, Andy Hagyard, who obviously was a uh, kind of the foremost members of Audine. He was at Leeds in this particular role. And there's a colleague, Victoria uh, Taylor there, who's, who's doing some ex excellent work. And I see myself maybe going back into doing kind of PGCs and um, higher education or something of that nature. In terms of where it should go, I think it should just keep helping students develop those critical questions. Um, so I keep this quote by Stephen Brookfield, who um, uh, his book, Becoming a Critically Effective Teacher, is this wonderful line in his book, which is um, about the reading of the potential of education, which he believes is to identify and then challenge and change the processes by which a grossly iniquitous society uses dominant ideology to convince people this is a normal state of affairs. I mean, that's front and center of my whole ethos and I think that's what learning development uh, is about and where it quote unquote should go I don't think it should become I think where it could risk becoming uh, is becoming co-opted with the need to retain right the narrative around retention your primary role here is to keep the students here kicking and screaming but your role here is to keep and I've been subject to these kind of discussions which is your role is to keep the students here make sure they don't drop out and there is part of that, I understand, and obviously the market, reality of the quote-unquote market, but at the same time, um, I think ideologically it's to help students develop their, crit their criticality. Hmm. How do we best communicate that, do you think, to, to others, to others outside learning development or to students even? Students. To students is through practice. Uh, it's not about giving them a journal article to read it's about practice so it's about um you don't have to give them the kind of audience website and say here are our principles it's with students is is is, is um, through the practice it's mm -hmm. through your your conversations with them it's the way in which you use different heuristic models say brookfield's lenses or i don't know perry stages or however you want to whatever you want to use gibbs's reflective framework however you're importing things into your practices with students be it at a, a group level or individual level to enable them to make connections right so you're doing it uh, you don't have to, you don't have to do it it's, you don't have to do exercise metacognition at that stage telling them what you're doing maybe just help them get into the mode of it and enable them to become comfortable in practicing critical thinking um, in terms of the wider community in terms of um, uh, managers and so on and so forth of the wider educa higher education community I think it's I think it really is public publish uh, publishing mm -hmm. I think it's published like like you wrote in your article recently I think not just journal articles but uh, and, and how you publish in the journal out of uh, all the, um, the journal for learning development obviously that makes sense otherwise you're going to be speaking in a bit of an echo chamber so it's uh, uh, targeting journals outside of journal of learning development uh, it's about targeting blogs like the wonky blog gets a huge readership cedar blogs um uh, BERA, Educational Research Association. It's about joining, yeah, looking at special interest groups, getting yourself out there. Um, and the, the thing I've written that got the most reads was actually for um, a network of scholars called Conviv uh, Convivial Thinking, which are based out of um, India and Holland, which was looking at post-coloniality and decolonization. And I've never written something that got attra attracted so much attention. That was for a blog post. Um, so it's about being creative with where you share your ideas, but you have to share, right? You have to write, you have to get yourself out there. A podcast, another way of doing that. Um, it's... Yeah, it's it's hard if you, I'm going going back to Kate's episode. It helps if you're extroverted, obviously to a, to a degree. Um, but even if you are introverted and your your power lies in the written word, so obviously you know <laughs> that journal articles are your are, are your friend in that regard, right? You don't have to be an extrovert going out there spreading the gospel. You can you can really kind of hunker down and pitch to, to journal articles and blogs and so on as well. So there's space at the table, like I said earlier, that metaphor of the table of different dispositions. It doesn't matter whether you're extroverted or introverted either. There's there's ways to get out there.
And you mentioned that dynamic insider-outsider, that it's so uh, potentially really useful when thinking about pushing the boundaries of scholarship as well, right? And not just thinking, as you mentioned, about journal articles, but thinking, okay, what is, how else can we become publicly known or yeah. push that kind of public scholarship in a way uh, yeah. through all sorts of outlets. But that brings us to writing. And mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> obviously we, we like talking about writing. Yeah, yeah. We like writing ourselves. Yeah, yeah. And you seem to be enjoying it too. So yeah. what is your relationship with writing? How do you see it <laughs> as playing part in your daily life or your identity? I love it. I need to write. I, 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 no, I love, absolutely love writing. I think no one does a PhD in philosophy unless you like writing, especially as well, because of the solitary nature of it. No empirical research, no interviews, just reading books by dead Germans. Um, love writing. I, I think it's having, for me, it's having conversations with the living and, with the living and dead, right? It's, it's engaging in dialogue. Uh, I, that whole distinction between empirical and theoretical research is a bit of a misnomer, I think. I think that you are engaging in real world activity. Um, it's, for me, writing is about having like, these itches I have to scratch, right? Something's annoying me, et cetera. I need, I need to get it out there. Um, I, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, it's center, it's, it's a way for me to think aloud as well, yeah. Great. Um, do you have your favorite uh, people who write about writing? I have loads, but I'm, okay. gonna be, I'm very quick with this. I have loads. I, I mean, listening back, I was, I was, I was surprised to hear how, how this wasn't the case for some other people, but because uh, I, <laughs> but for me, I've got a few different like types, right? So if I talked about, like, I'll be very quick with this, very nuts and bolts kind of like, what would I recommend to a student on how to write academically in, in hum the humanities, say? For me, it was, um, you know, your one Nigel Warburton is well known, uh, who works at the Open University. So his philosophy essential study guide, got to my final year of university, didn't know how to write. We never had any developers at Cardiff in the mid noughties. And that to me was like, ah, there's a, there's a formula. You know, so that would be one I recommend. In terms of writing for journals or publish or writing papers, there's a gentleman called uh, Stephen Mumford at the University of Nottingham, who's a philosopher there, who's created what's called the Mumford Method, um, named after him, I think. Otherwise, it's a very happy coincidence. So he he's created this model of coming up with ideas, which works on an A4 piece of paper with two columns and a series of questions, which I can share a link with you afterwards, but it's a really great way to formulate um, papers that can turn into journal articles, um, which was recommended to me by um, a member at the faculty at Cardiff when I started my thesis. Um, in terms of about getting inspiration to write or just like, just makes a love of writing apparent. It's Haruki Murakami's what, what I talk about when I talk about running, which you're nodding along to. I mean, what my sister recommended, I'm, I don't read much fiction. I don't, I haven't really read any of his fiction. I don't think maybe one text, but that text I just absolutely fell in love with. You know, it's just a thinking aloud, right? A memoir kind of just completely, um, you can't pigeonhole that text. And I think that's a wonderful text about what writing can do. Mm -hmm. um, and then, in terms of the minutiae of writing and the revising, editing, proofreading stages, I have to give a shout out to Simon Griffin's fucking apostrophes. It's an outstanding text. It's about apostrophes and it's very humorously written. Um, and I currently just started a book yesterday, which is by um, the etymologist Mark Forsyth called The Elements of Eloquence, um, which is a fantastic read so far. Um, he's, a, he's a very good writer. If you like the kind of Bill Bryson travel writing style, he writes like that about language. So oh. it's very uh, engaging. That's Mark Forsyth. I don't know him. He's not getting royalties from me, but it's, um, it's a really well-written text. So I, I yeah, I, I'm just a complete buff for words, etymology, the history of ideas. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could, I could give you hours of books about writing, <laughs> but I'll stop there. <laughs>
You've significantly added to my reading list. So <laughs> I think I thank you for that. <laughs> it's lots of writing, reading in my future. Um, Doku, right? The, the, the pile of books that uh, yes. you're aiming to read. <laughs> that's right. That's right. It's, it's uh, very, very tall. It's pushing up under the bed. <laughs> um, what about writing, though? What advice would you have for people who struggle with the actual process of doing it? Because we can all read about writing and I'm guilty of this. You, you read it and it's like you've done it, yeah. but you still haven't written anything. Yeah. So what about the people that can't get over that mm. line? Yeah, it's the, the the horrible kind of blank Word document on the pages and no one has the quill anymore on the papers. The word blank Word document. Um, for me and something I, I say to all the students doing research projects and so on is to free speak. So forget the free writing then, forget the association you've made between your fingers and the laptop right and sitting at the desk and all that stuff and, and the, the temptation to browse amazon or something like that right so for me it's about free speaking so what does that mean get your phone you know they all have voice recorders now we don't have to carry around this bumbling you know tape recorders those huge batteries we had in the 90s and, and so on I remember having one of those but now you can just use your phone right so just literally speak about what's on your mind speak about what annoys you you know don't worry about funding streams projects or tailoring your ideas to a particular kind of project strand just literally just speak what's on your mind just say you know i'm so annoyed that i don't know what am i gonna have for dinner i, I might have left the gas on whatever comes to mind just keep verbalizing it give yourself a, a time limit of no more than say five to seven minutes there's lots of literature on how to do this but i don't want to plug that because we're going down that rabbit hole again but just get speaking just speak for a minute just speak for a minute about maybe just do what i suggested earlier that they did at the comedy training speak about what pisses you off just speak about what annoys you in your job say and you'll have something to say it could be your boss it could be your desk it could be the uh, the air conditioner is too noisy and just speak about it and see where it leads because, you know, it, you, those connections might start firing and then you might have something to write about. And then it's about thinking, OK, where would be a right avenue in which to share this idea? So I wrote one piece, which I thought I was convinced it was going to be a journal article earlier in the year about learning environments. Um, and it turned into actually, no, this is actually a blog post and it would turn into a wonky post. Something else, which I think might be um, a conference paper actually turns out, no, I need 10,000 words for this. But don't be restricted by the form at the first instance. Just say, okay, I'm going to write a journal article or I'm going to write a blog post. Forget that. Let the, let the ideas form and then figure out the best arena in which to share that. It might just be a, a, a paper. It just might be a blog. It might be a podcast. It might be a journal article. That's my advice. Someone else might tell you the completely opposite thing saying, I mean, I think there's, um, I think it's Rowena Murray, kind of guru of thesis writing would say, no, no, look at the journal read their previous uh, uh, submissions, look at the format, read the submission guidelines, and then think of your ideas in line with those. Otherwise, you're wasting your time. I know that's what she says, because I read that. <laughs> and there's value in that, of course. And try it. But if, if you are struggling to write, then why not try it this way I'm suggesting as well? Because I've seen it work for students. So can I just push you on that a little bit? <laughs> so how does it work with students then? If they have a very specific essay to write, yeah, they can't quite afford to think about it as something else. So how do you go around that and maybe yeah. meet that resistance? Okay, yeah, the context in which I was talking was research projects when they had to come up with their own question. But if they've been given a particular question, then it is, unfortunately, it is um, it's brainstorming, right? It's the quote-unquote mind mapping, it's the listing. But the most out there technique I've tried was using quiz and air rods, so like Lego pieces. So for students that are much more abstractly minded, I'm not, I need lists. I make, I, I make lists about my lists. That's how exciting my life is. But for this particular student who was a muralist, great painter, 
could see things in the abstract, but was not good at linear lines and planning an essay structure. So I was scratching my head and we use things like quiz and errors, you know, Lego pieces, spread things out on the table, make a conceptual map of what it is you're trying to say. And that for him worked, wouldn't work for me. It does not work for me. I'm useless with that kind of thinking, but that's what, so what I have is a set, I have different tools students can use. You can use, um, we can use Padlets, we can use Poplet, which is a, a mind map software, uh, which you can create bubbles and you can move them around very uh, easily. So Poplet, P-O-P-P-L-E-T. Again, I don't work for them. I'm not getting royalties. Um, mind maps, lists, brainstorming, um, and if that is failing, if being at the computer or having the pen and paper is the stumbling block, free speak, speak about it, right? Record your voice and then listen to yourself back. And you might pick out one or two things that can become really interesting ideas to explore in that, say, fixed essay you've been given. Just talk about it. Talk about why you hate the question. Talk about what confuses you, because that will give you the questions that you need to start answering. That's really good advice. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I do try. <laughs> I'm going to call that the Dylan method. Oh, thank you. It's very kind. Have one, I think you can as well. <laughs> oh, is there anything else that you we haven't asked you that you would like to talk about or tell us about or just generally ponder? I feel no. like we haven't asked you a million things. No. <laughs> a million to talk about. But <laughs> yeah. No, I thank, I thank you for humouring me. And allowing me to 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 um, ramble on, it's it's um, it's been really good to actually get some of these ideas out of questions that I haven't actually thought about before. To reflect, so doing a bit of exercise, a bit of metacognition, and think about how I'm actually thinking about these things. But um, when I said earlier, one thing that I would like to maybe close on is um, when looking at the roots, the three roots I proposed in the well-being paper. I mean, now, like I said, the gym metaphor for me is a bit dead in the water. So where I've gone to is looking at the transgressive role of humor in the classrooms, looking at the role of humor in higher education spaces. So, and that's led to a publication that's going to come out in other education later this year on. So I'm doing a completely shameless plug here. We live in a marketized culture, so I'm going to join it. So I'm going to be, uh, it's about looking at the role of transgressive humor and the role of the ironist in a higher, in a higher education environment. And that's led to now a kind of research more strand of looking at the archetypal role of the trickster. So we all know about the kind of archetypal role of the hero, um, kind of the, the hero with a thousand faces, the mythical journey and so on. I'm interested in the role of the trickster, the provocateur, the um, court jester, and the role that using that archetype might be fruitful within our current climate that we find ourselves in. Something that's much harder to pin down, reify, um, commodify, create into a kind of step-by-step -step plan. Mm -hmm. So I think we could have a bit more of a trickster ethic within mm -hmm. higher education. I think that, and that's where my thought is gone now. It's amazing. Actually, uh, at the most recent Aldin uh, conference, there was a paper on um, being a comedian or the value oh, okay. of, yeah, of kind of comedian's practice in, in the classroom, especially when it comes to learning developers. I think it was Arthur Ryan uh, Arthur who Ryan. delivered that. Uh, so it really changes. So I'm really looking forward to reading uh, your piece. Cool. Thank you. Uh, yeah, maybe we can have you back on the podcast. <laughs> yes. Talk to you about it. <laughs> happy to. Well, thanks very much, Sunny. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you both. Thanks for having me. Everyone. Thanks a lot. And thank you to our listeners. Uh, I have no doubts everyone enjoyed it immensely as much as I did. <laughs> mm -hmm.